Akili companies, they are all about the Akilian culture and they know people are the most important asset. Recently, Keeley Companies entered a new chapter of their organization and underwent an entire corporate rebrand driven by the same mission and core values. Keeley Companies is a family-owned enterprise of companies across the country. They act as your single source for investment, development, management, construction, and restoration. They are still the same Keeley you know and you love. Just with a fresh, streamlined look, and new additions to the family. Who knows? And maybe you'll see the Keeley K around your time. And when you do, go on in, shake their hand, and tell them John O'Leary sent you. My friends, to learn more about the work they do and where they are, visit them online at KeeleyCompanies.com. Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire, He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Hello, my friends, and welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. When our guest today, his name is Adam Robarts, was asked by a family member what he would choose to do for a career if he was not an architect. Without hesitation, he replied, I'd be a hospice nurse. You see, it was just five years earlier that he had a profound experience accompanying his father through the final weeks of life before he died of cancer in Uganda. And yet Adam, a world-renowned architect, could not have imagined that then, just nine months after that conversation with his family member, that he would begin to accompany his 19-year-old son, Hayden, through a battle with a rare and aggressive form of brain cancer. My friends, today, Adam's going to join us to share how Hayden's dignified response to his own suffering provides essential wisdom and hopeful possibilities for each of us in our own lives. I'm going to encourage you right now to get ready for an emotional conversation of pain, of loss, of death, of life, and ultimately recognizing what matters most. So get ready to buckle up because this conversation will renew within you a mindset to live this precious life that is your life with purpose and with clarity. So without further ado, let me welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast, my friend, and now yours. His name is Adam Robarts. Adam, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. John, thank you. It's such an honor to be on your podcast. I've looked forward to this. Well, I just looked at the dial. You and I have been already partying for almost 15 minutes just talking about family and upbringing and origin stories and things we want to accomplish during this conversation together. And finally, I said to you, Okay, stop wasting your golden nuggets on me because I want to make sure our listeners are able to tune in as well. So I'm going to give you an opportunity to introduce yourself. I gave you a formal introduction. But if you were to meet someone at a market, how would you introduce yourself? Wow. Interestingly, I sometimes say that I'm a British architect. It's a little bit of a sort of easy response because people sort of then can put a label on me that's that gives them a little bit of a direction. But actually, very shortly after that, I realized that that label doesn't really work. 
because I grew up in Africa, um, Uganda and Kenya. My first language is actually Swahili. Um, but I went back to the UK uh, for my university education, and I have spent time there. I became an architect there. And shortly into my professional career, I left for China. So I've spent almost 30 years on and off in China. I moved there in 1993. And in 1995, Karen, my wife, joined me. And we raised four children in China, all of whom speak Chinese and love China. So that's very much a part of me. In 2013, my father passed away in Uganda and I was with him. And interestingly, a few years later, after that very profound experience with dad and holding him as he took his last breath, dying of cancer, somebody asked at a Christmas gathering in Canada, um, my wife is Canadian and my dad was Canadian. So there's a sort of Canadian component to this, someone said, Adam, if you weren't an architect, what would you be? Mm. And I remember taking a moment and thinking, as other people in the room answered the same question, I found myself saying something that almost caught me aback. I said, I think I'd like to be a hospice nurse. And that was because of my experience with dad. Well, I was unaware at that time that eight months later, I would become exactly that to my son, Hayden, who at age 19 was diagnosed with a four centimeter brain tumor. And Hayden went through nine and a half months of hospitals, um, chemotherapy and radiation and surgeries, brain surgeries, um, and the clinical trial. And eventually we accompanied him to the end of his life. And he passed away in our home in Canada one week before his 20th birthday. So I did sort of become, like it or not, a hospice nurse. It was during COVID, you know, and we didn't have the real hospice nurses with us. So as a family, as complete amateurs, we ended up coaching, accompanying, supporting, loving our son in his last weeks of life. So that's my, that's my story. I think everything else pales into insignificance after that kind of an experience. You had me an architect from the UK, and, uh, and then I fell even more in love with you and your heart as you journeyed forward on the upbringing and the languages you speak and where you've traveled, where you've been, your wife caring, your four children. You hold in your dad. Three different times during your introduction of yourself, you used the word accompany, accompany, mm. I accompany. That's a beautiful term. I want to make sure we talk about that as we as we journey forward together as well. I'm going to back up and just kind of slowly piece through some of that story you shared a moment ago. You, you mentioned spending time as a child in Africa. What was your mother father's career? What, what brought you down to Africa in the first place? Dad was an architect and my mother was a professor of art, a practicing artist. Um, she was head of fine art at Makerere University in Kampala, Uganda. And dad Got, got a job actually working on the design of the parliament buildings in Uganda. That's what took them out there in 1964. And with me as a, as a baby, an infant in their arms. You spend your formative years there. Primarily, what was the thing you learned about life, the value of life in your upbringing? I just, when I think about life as a child growing up in Uganda or 
after that in Kenya, I just think of this sort of lovely, adventurous spirit. We were always doing such interesting things, often going out to the villages on the weekends and playing with kids, just kicking a, a ball around, you know, under, under the tree and just simple living that was full of spirit and joy. I didn't travel much. I mean, we weren't flying around in in aeroplanes around the world in those days. You know, it was just the most amazing experience where we really got to experience the villages and the Ugandans in those villages. Mum might be teaching children's classes or dad might be, you know, talking about subjects with the elderly folk, you know, in the village. So very happy memories, happy, adventurous, living with abundance. You know, and extraordinary gratitude. I think we felt very, very happy there. They were happy years. Did you know as a child you wanted to become an architect? No, not at all. Actually, I was determined to be a doctor until I was 16. Um, at age 16, I um, had a rugby accident and smashed my nose quite badly. So I ended up in hospital. And interestingly, here as I as a 16-year-old thinking I'd love to be a surgeon, and all the magic of surgery just disappeared. It just was no longer as attractive. It was just rather bland and uninteresting and it didn't captivate me. And at that time in school, we did um, these aptitude tests and my aptitude tests came back, architect, architect, architect. This guy is a three-dimensional thinker. He's very strong spatially and he should be working as an architect. It was so simple. So I thought, well, who knows? Why not? Let me try it. And um, I'm very grateful. I love architecture. I really do. You went back home to the UK, studied at Cambridge, eventually graduate. Then why China? You get, the world was your mm. You could go back to Africa, come over to North America, go anywhere. Why'd you choose China? You know, while I was working as a young architect in Manchester, uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, I did some part-time teaching at the university in Manchester. And I had some Chinese students. And one year, I went to a Chinese New Year party that they invited me to. It was 99% Chinese. And they were having, they were just such an amazing group of people, diligent, studious, on purpose, not frivolous in any way, but still able to really enjoy life. And they said to me at this Chinese New Year party, when are you coming to China? And I said, well, I have no intention of going to China. And they said, you know, we could set up maybe an opportunity to be a teacher, to teach architecture for six months. What about a sabbatical in China? And so it was that that opened the door. It was my Chinese students in Manchester who made it possible and who sowed the seed. You go for a while that you and your wife, Karen, moved there. In 1995, yes. And so I'd been there for a couple of years um, on my own and corresponding with this amazing Canadian who was at that time living in Uganda. So she had also had a, a life where she'd been pulled out of her nest, you know, growing up in Ottawa. And Karen was running an art gallery and cafe, an art gallery for Eastern African artists that she founded in Kampala, Uganda. And I was in Chongqing in China, and we were corresponding. And through this correspondence for a year and a half, we were gradually beginning to fall in love. And so in 1994, 
I went to Uganda and spent the summer there helping my dad with his architectural practice and getting to know Karen. And um, I proposed to her later in that year. And we went back to China together. We got married in 1995. And two weeks later, we were in China, newly married couple. It was really our honeymoon. And we didn't know how long we'd stay there. And all these many years later, China is still the place where we grew our business and raised our children. And in many ways, it's another home for us. We have very special connections to China, very fond thoughts about China. As a, a podcast host, you, you try to prepare for these interviews by getting to know the guests that you're bringing on. And sometimes as you get to know them, it feels like you get to know their family because the better you get to know them, if you do your job right, the better you get to know his spouse, their children, their upbringing, all that kind of stuff. So I feel like I know your wife, Karen, she's beautiful uh, inside she and out. Is. She's just a beautiful lady, but I'm curious as a young fella, in addition to her physical beauty, what was it about her that you just fell in love with? How long do you have? <laughs> Karen is very, very special. I wish we could have a whole podcast just on how we met, born and bred in Ottawa for generations, um, and a strong Christian vein through that. I was raised on the other side of the planet, right? In Uganda and Kenya. My family were Baha'is. My parents my mom from a Jewish background, my dad from a Christian background, had become Baha'is in their 20s at university. Um, and they raised us as children uh, in that tradition. So Karen in her early, mid, in her mid-20s, was very interested in religion and started to investigate. She went to Thailand and looked at Buddhism, and she read things that she could about other faiths, she came across the Baha'i faith and she chose also to try and lead her life as a Baha'i. So I think that was something that also connected us. She's very creative, super creative. And I once said to her, you know, Karen, I'd love to work with you because as an architect, I could see that what a tremendous touch she would bring to any design process. And from the very first project we worked on, which was actually helping my dad to make a little brochure for his uh, little architectural practice in Uganda. I just, I asked Karen if she'd help me on this brochure and we did that and it was such fun. So later, of course, we ended up working together and forming a design studio in China that, that was reasonably successful, I guess, in sort of traditional terms. You know, we've got about 120 architects and designers and project managers working in China. And all of that came from just deciding that we wanted to try and work together. So she's very special. She's um, very creative. She has a lovely spirit. And most important, she is an extraordinary mother. She has mothered our children with so much love and commitment and patience. I learn a lot from her. Thank you for asking about Karen. Thank you for the beautiful answer. You're making all the, all the, the men listening to the podcast uh, blush right now. They, they're longing for an answer as beautiful <laughs> for their loved ones as you just gave for yours, uh, including being a great mom. You raised four kids together. In 2012-ish, 2013, your father becomes sick and then sicker and then extraordinarily sick with cancer. Did you know that the end was near? Yes. Dad had pancreatic cancer and 
you know, pancreatic cancer is very fast. Um, and when dad was sort of in his last weeks of life, I left China and went to be with him. So I knew it was the end of life. And uh, I had the chance to be with him and to, as you say, you use the word accompany. I was unaware I was using it so much, but I accompanied him during those, those weeks. So my father-in-law, Joe, also passed away of pancreatic cancer. And his wife was over at our house just on Sunday night. And we were talking about Joe and how special those last conversations were. He, he wasn't so sick as to be unable to communicate until the last day or two before he ultimately died. But we treasure those last weeks. We just treasure those last weeks of this man at his home, able to hold his hand and listen to his voice and tell him that we loved him. For you, what were those last that is weeks? So yeah, amazing. That's, that's a beautiful synchronicity. Um, dad too, even though he was very sick, he was completely lucid, very clear. And we talked, we prayed, I sat on his bed in his little home, very humble home in Uganda on a tea plantation. And I think those last weeks are very special because dying isn't just that one minute you're alive and the next minute you're dead. There's almost a transition. And, you know, dad would see things, say things, express things that almost seemed that in those final weeks, he was, especially the final days, associating with the next chapter of his journey. You know, he would even sometimes, this may sound a bit weird to some of your listeners, but he'd sort of even see things that, like, he'd wave at somebody in the room, and I knew I was the only person in the room, but he'd say, hello there, and he'd sort of just a gentle wave, as if he'd seen somebody, and I thought, is he just hallucinating or is he beginning to associate in some rather mysterious way with the next world, with whatever lies beyond the veil that separates us? And he had also no fear of death. You know, dad believed very much that this was a transition to a more abundant life. Mm. Um, and as did Hayden, you know, um, these years later, so I, in the two cases where I had that privilege to accompany somebody right in their last days and to their last breath, it was really a, a very beautiful experience. And I know it's not that way for everybody, right. um, but both cases were at home. And I do believe that dying can be a positive experience for the whole family, actually. You know, it can be something very spiritual, very beautiful. Of course, the physical side of it is usually difficult, and usually there is pain associated with it, certainly if cancer is there. But if, if you have the right medication, and morphine is amazing, <laughs> um, you can reduce that pain and manage that pain so that actually the dying process can be, can be dignified, mm. can be noble and definitely can be positive. Oh, so I, d I don't want to glorify it, but it can be almost a majestic journey, you know, befitting what is really happening, which is that we are transitioning from this world to maybe a more abundant life that lies waiting for us. I find it so surprising and ironic that years after your father's death, 
you're in Canada, you're at a holiday celebration and everyone's going around, spinning around saying, if you weren't this, what would you do? And you respond to hospice nurse, not only because it's an incredibly difficult, sacred profession, but because you're gonna find yourself in that position about a year after that answer. So before we move forward and talk about Hayden, whose life and whose death, I wanna make sure we recognize and celebrate today. First, the answer, what, what was it about walking with your dad mm -hmm. down that path, that journey of, of life ultimately to death and then, and then into the next phase that you found so transformational that you, you thought, you know what, if I had to do something outside of architecture, I would choose this profession. Yeah. Well, John, you used the word sacred. And, you know, with dad in those last days, in those last hours and even moments, I was so conscious of being in the presence of the sacred. I was treading on sacred ground. And I think when we talk about accompaniment, what we're really talking about is two souls accompanying each other. You know, you can physically accompany somebody down the road and walk side by side. But in life, and certainly in something as important as marriage or true friendship, we are accompanying each other, one soul to another. And I think that's true, true accompaniment. And with dad, I touched on that. I felt it. I felt honored to be in that space. And so, yes, lo and behold, here we are in Canada, sort of in a rather playful way, going around the table and saying, what would we be if we were not what we do, you know, professionally and as a sort of day job. And I said, if I wasn't an architect, I would choose to be a, a hospice nurse. And it was really thinking about dad and reflecting on that very special time I had with him. Of course, I had no idea that Hayden would ever be sick. I mean, he was super healthy and really all primed to go to university in September of, you know, nine months later in September, this was Christmas time and Hayden was getting ready for university. And it was a special time in his life. He was a sporty, smart, talented young man with the world ahead of him, you know, so many, so much possibility. And I had no idea that in August of 2019, I would get that phone call. Karen and I would be together and receive the call that our beloved Hayden was sick, that he had cancer and he had urgent need for brain surgery to, to see what this tumor was really doing. August 1st, 2019, you're getting ready for your own exciting next step. You're getting ready to leave and head down to Bali with your wife. Life is ahead for you and all your kids, in particular Hayden, and you get that phone call. Will you take us back to that day and just share with us what it felt like to hear that news? And then what did you do next? What a moment that was. As you say, John, you know, Karen and I and our youngest child, um, our son, Keon, were at a sort of trailhead. We were excited. We were on our way to Bali, and Keon was enrolled at the Green School uh, here in Bali, and he was passionate about the environment. Here was a school that was, you know, made of bamboo and in the jungle, and he would learn so much about nature, about living sustainably, and we were accompanying him um, to find his passion. And there we were in Singapore, about to fly that afternoon to Bali. And we knew Hayden had been experiencing some headaches and a little bit of nausea. Hayden was still in Canada. And my brother, who is an ER doctor, 
had said, Hayden, why don't you just get on the train and come to Toronto and um, I'll organize for you to get an MRI done and we'll just, just check you out just to be safe. And he had done that. And we'd sort of been aware that he was doing this. And Simon, my brother called and he asked if we were sitting down and we were on the edge of the bed in our hotel room in Singapore. And he said, Hayden has a tumor in his brain. It's four centimeters in diameter and he needs urgent surgery. And I remember just holding Karen and weeping. I wept uncontrollably, sobbing because, you know, cancer is scary and one thinks of the worst, even just with the word cancer. I was so unprepared and it was a, a moment of terror. Yeah. It was truly awful. And of course, we had to move very fast. We changed our tickets to Bali and we flew that afternoon to Canada. And we arrived in Canada just as Hayden came out of his first brain surgery. And that began this extraordinary journey of nine and a half months with Hayden as he suffered. He really suffered. But my goodness, it's not a story of pain and suffering and awfulness. It's a story of this 19-year-old who chose the path of grace and yeah. gratitude and was able to suffer in a way that honestly inspired me so much that it was really a privilege to accompany him on this particular journey. You write about positivity. And one of the characteristics that he taught you as he journeyed forward was around the call to be positive. And, and there's a little bit of a backlash now around toxic positivity, this idea that everything's perfect and it's sunny all the time. You know, these, these plastered on smiles. That's not what you're referencing here. It's a firmer, more resilient, more audacious version of positivity in the face of the storm, in the midst of the storm. Yeah. Would you talk about learning about the gift of positivity from yourself? Also about the gift of authenticity. You know, in the chapter on authenticity, I talk about some of the work by researchers, people like uh, Susan David, who is a professor at Harvard, writes beautifully about um, authenticity and exactly what you say, you know, this emotional agility where we accept all of our emotions, uh, both those that are positive and those that are negative. We take them on honestly and truthfully and vulnerably. And that really makes us true to ourselves. So this is the journey that is very different from this kind of false positivity, this toxic positivity, which we sometimes get when we spend too much time on Instagram, you know, and in social media, where everyone is only showing their best selves. It's so important, especially when faced with a very steep mountain that we don't pretend. We have to get real, really real. Hayden was that. He was straight with us. He was real with the journey. He knew what he was facing. Here we were, it was, we were climbing a sort of metaphorical mountain and yes. it was Himalayan. It was Himalayan. And we were, we were, we didn't consider ourselves seasoned mountaineers. We were thrown into it. 
but how to be positive. So first of all, how to be real, you know, how to not pretend, how to face all of what we had in front of us. That's important in mountaineering. You can't pretend that it's fair weather when the wind is blowing against you. You know, that headwind is a headwind and you have to accommodate it and work with it to the best of your ability. So that's, that's part of the mountaineering journey. But one has to stay hopeful. One has to be real and at the same time, find the beauty, find the joy in every step of the mountain journey. We look at some of this research, look at some of the learning about authenticity and also share some stories from Hayden. We also look at how in the story of health, the world of health that we live in, often we see sickness and we design hospitals to deal with sickness. It's a very pathogenic approach. And doctors are often seen as those people who cure disease. They live in the world of disease. Right. Um, and often we, we sort of entrust dying to the medical profession. But in that chapter, we look at the option of looking actually at health rather than disease. That's really interesting. So if you've got a disease-centric approach, let's call it pathogenic. That's what our prevailing health system looks at. But it's really nothing to do with health. It's disease-focused. There is another word, salutogenic, which I love because it's actually this idea of causing health. How do we cause health? You know, I'm an architect and I, I design hospitals. And often when we design hospitals, traditionally, we design them as places where sick people go for disease to be cured by doctors. But what about going to a place that actually causes health? How do we design with light, with acoustics, with a program where you enter a space and you feel that this space inspires health? And you know, some of the most interesting um, hospitals, if we can even call them that today, look very different. They look more like spas or schools or places where you go and there are animals where children can interact with animals. I'm talking about something like, you know, the Royal, um, the Children's Hospital in Melbourne. You know, it's such a place of joy. Yeah. It's such a positive place to be that you almost, without even seeing the doctor, you start healing. And I think that's interesting when hospitals start providing music and looking at music therapy and how music in the atrium space can lift one's spirit. So I think this is something that in the chapter on positivity, we look at how health can be a journey that is a positive journey of growing our health rather than curing our sickness. You used the word a moment ago, hope, and there's an entire chapter on hope within your book. You've also referenced those a mountain climber. When you look out, there are other peaks in front of you. You've got to figure out how do I scale down from where I am and begin climbing to where I need to go next. To talk about that, I don't know if it's a dichotomy or not, but how do you balance hopelessness with hope-filled ideas of what remains possible? So there seems mm. to be a delicate balance between losing out on hope but retaining it and fighting for it with everything you have. Yeah. I remember when we were told in Toronto that Hayden had come to the end of his curative path, the journey of 
curing the cancer and that he was now entering a palliative stage. We thought, wow, you, mean, you could definitely become hopeless in that moment. But Hayden chose the path of hope. He wanted to make sure that whatever time was left would be beautiful, would be time with family, would be time where he would be able to get the most out of living, even if that journey of living was approaching death. And of course, you know, he was a 19-year-old. He wanted to make sure we hadn't left any stone unturned. So we put out a kind of Hail Mary request in case there was any opportunity for a, a clinical trial anywhere in the world that might address this particular brain cancer. And we found that in New York, there was. And, but it was a slim chance. And Hayden said one day, he said, you know, even if it's 1% chance, that's 1% more than zero. I thought that was so beautiful, so hopeful. Often when we think about hope, I sometimes see people using it almost like wishful thinking. And I don't think that kind of hope is useful. You know, it's a bit fluffy and sort of kind of just kind of hope for the best, but really not believing in the best. And I think that for hope to become something powerful, mm. something that can get us up that really steep slope of the mountain, it needs to have a strong foundation. I reflected on hope and I thought, you know, faith is the mountain. And if hope stands on that, then it isn't wishful thinking. You know, it's grounded. It has a foundation. And so actually, I think the, my understanding of hope is sort of be quite deeply connected to my present understanding of faith, you know, as the mountain itself. I think that faith is this idea of much more than just belief, much more than just throwing caution to the wind and saying, I'm throwing in my lot here with this particular group or this particular theory, and I'm expressing my faith. No, I think faith needs to be grounded in asking questions and searching, independently investigating truth. And I think faith can be faith in science and faith in religion. You know, when we do anything in life, we are expressing faith. When we jump out of an airplane um, and have a parachute, of course, it's, it's faith in the laws of gravity, right? In the way that parachutes work. Oh, yes. And I, I don't think that's blind at all. It's well grounded. And I think this is something that we should apply in our investigation and our practice of religion. Um, our practice of whatever spiritual tradition it is. It should be grounded in conscious knowledge um, and then expressed in action, in deeds, not in theory, just like jumping out of that airplane or walking across the street. Um, and we believe in scientific laws like gravity. We believe in spiritual laws like love and kindness and justice, truthfulness. I don't think those are pie in the sky. I think they're real. And I think they are not for, for monks in far off monasteries. I think they are for soldiers and wow. for architects and podcasters and all of us in this yeah. life. I, I wanna ask you next about time, but before we get there, faith. 
for those listening right now who have little of it, little of it in government, little of it in, in God, a higher power, little of it in themselves, little of it in gravity or anything else, they just have lost faith, man. They've lost their hope. They're filled with despair. What invitation might you offer them? What's the, what's the next right step for them to mm. ignite that hope and that faith? I think it's, first of all, that's such a great question. Hayden loved asking questions. I think this is why he had such a deep faith. I think Hayden loved asking questions. And I think this is part of how he had such a, a profound faith in science, as well as in religion. You know, he would go to meetings with doctors and he'd have his phone and in it he had all his questions that he wanted to ask them. And so I think for those of us who are becoming skeptical and disillusioned and cynical about the world today, which is in a mess, but there are good things happening too. There's wonder and beauty in this world, but we have to find it. And, and, then, and then become part of it. And in order to find it, we need to ask questions. We need to look. And so I think this is a really first step. It's a very practical step. Read. I mean, look, John, look how much you read. And it's so beautiful to hear you on your podcasts. And I don't know how many books a year you read, but it's really the first step of faith is ask questions, look, investigate the truth, and we will each be rewarded with answers. And then we, we go further with those answers that seem to be resonating. With those that don't, leave them by the wayside. You know, it's this idea that we get from, you know, when Jesus said, you shall know them by their fruits. You know, a good tree bears good fruit. And if the fruit is bad, then the tree is bad. So I think as we ask questions and search for answers, looking for the truth, we will find good fruits. And those are the ones that tell us that the tree is good. Mm. Um, when you talked about Karen earlier, you asked, what did I love about Karen? I've suddenly reminded myself in saying this. She asks questions. And when she investigated religion, because she was a little bit disappointed in what she saw as religion, you know, um, she came across the Baha'i faith and she felt it was something that she wanted to learn more about. It was good fruit. So for her, that was an important journey in her faith. She also saw good fruit in Buddhism and elsewhere. You know, there's no monopoly on goodness. You know, goodness exists everywhere. And we should always look for the light and follow that light, not the lamp, right? So the label is, is limiting. But if you look at the light, it doesn't matter where we find it that goodness helps us to grow, to become what we were created to be. Okay. We need a full another hour on diving deeper into not only faith, but asking questions. Because I think when most people ask questions these days, they ask them knowing the answer they want to hear. And if it is not the answer, kind of like the video you and I talked about before we started recording, where you were sharing your faith and there were 15 people around you, not asking questions to learn and grow, but asking questions to debate or to belittle you. And, and oh, so I'm so with you. I'm so with you. And I have to say, I don't want to knock the West, the Western world, but I, you know, I was a professor, I was teaching architecture. And in many of our universities, 
in the West and to some extent in our culture, we sort of almost see cynicism and debate as a sign of intelligence. And you know what? It's not helping us. We have to become more positive about not being afraid yes. of being optimistic and joyful. We don't have to always be cynical to show our true selves. You know, we can be vulnerable and accept that sometimes that pureness, that purity that sometimes we see in children still belongs with us as adults. Um, it doesn't have to be knocked at every step. It doesn't have to be called naive. You know, mm. sometimes it can be very refreshing to encounter that, that purity, that joy of the child, even if it's in a 90-year-old or an elderly person. <laughs> it, uh, it brings lightness to life. So I, I've written two books now in my life. The first one was called On Fire, and it really celebrates the human beings who showed up in mighty ways after I got burned, the profound impact they had on my life. The second book that came out is called In Awe. And In Awe is about celebrating the grandeur of life. And where I recognize the need for it is as we look through adult eyes, we are bored by a beautiful sunset. We are annoyed that our coffee wasn't quite hot enough. And then you look at the life of either a child, age four to five is the prime time for childhood joy, or the life of like a 92-year-old. Because in both cases, they can see life through the lens of awe. And I recognize in my own children what so frequently was missing, not only in me, but in many adults. So the answer you just gave is one um, that I'm compelled to learn more about in my life. I want to I want to live in awe. I want to I want to remain there. Yeah. I want to be so sure of what I know and believe that I ask questions of those who know and believe different things so I can learn from them. Mm. And I think I heard a podcast a few weeks ago. I think it is um, Professor Dachner in uh, UCLA who's doing it, uh, who's doing this research. But some really interesting recent, recent research in terms of qualities that inspire resilience in human beings. And awe is right at the top of the list in the power of awe to create resilience. And this book, 19, describing our journey with Hayden is, is um, framed in this, in the language of a mountain climb, yes. climbing a mountain. And interestingly, mountain climbing inspires awe. And although it's tough climbing mountains, it's arduous, sometimes dangerous, but it's an upward journey full of increasing awe and wonder. And I think it's a beautiful metaphor for life. You know, that awe is what keeps mountaineers coming back to the mountain because each, each climb is unique to the mountaineer, to that mountaineer on that mountain at that moment facing that sunrise, you know, and the awe that it inspires keeps us going keeps us living, motivates us, and inspires hope that we talked about a little bit earlier. So I'm so glad that we touched on this beautiful word, awe, because it so relates to the metaphor of mountain climbing. Well, when you mountain climb, or for those of us who hike, sometimes you come to that vista and it's, it's so stunning, and yet ultimately you've got to leave it. And you got to see what the next step has in store, the next, the next overhang might have in store for you. May 19th, 2020 is one of the most profound moments in your life when ultimately you've got to say goodbye for the final time to 
would you take us back to that day and whether it's a moment or a conversation leading up to it and ultimately what you learned not only about death, but what you learn about life and saying goodbye to your son. Hmm. So May 19th, 2020 was one week before Hayden's 20th birthday. And it was his last day with us here in this world. Here he was in our sitting room, lying on a hospital bed, very much in the last days of his life. We, of course, we never know exactly when we take that final step across the threshold, through the veil into what lies beyond. And, but we were around him as a family. Karen and I and the children were taking turns so that there would always be somebody beside Hayden, somebody sitting beside his bed in case he needed anything. Of course, he slept a lot in those last days. He was very, very weak physically, but he was fully conscious. And it was a long night where two of the kids had taken turns. They were doing sort of like three hour shifts so that Karen and I could get a little bit of sleep. We knew that we were very close. We came and we sort of became our turn. And then actually Kian said to us, why don't you get a coffee? So we went to the kitchen and we made ourselves a coffee and the gurgling of the machine, the coffee machine, kind of was like the gurgling of Hayden's breathing. And then Kian came to us and said, mom and dad, I think you should come. And we left the coffee machine and came over to Hayden and stood beside him and Karen put her hand on his chest as he took his last breaths and sort of out and out and out. And then that was the end of his physical journey. He, the physical form, that vehicle had done its job. What happens to Hayden's reality, his spirit, is mysterious. We don't really know, but the religions of the world give us an intimation of what happens. And we deeply believed that that was not the end. And so there was a sense of deep sadness, but also a sense of relief because mm. that suffering was over. And we knew in our hearts, in our innermost beings, that he was maybe in a place of more freedom, more abundance. And so we prayed, we said a prayer together. Of course, since then, we've said many prayers, continue to pray for his soul, for our journeys, for our connection and love. We had a beautiful funeral the next day, a tribute to Hayden, a memorial service the following day. Of course, in those days, it was a time of COVID and we couldn't gather in any sort of quantities. People couldn't come into the house. Interestingly, the funeral home brought a coffin to the home, to our home, to our house. And we had the privilege as a family to prepare Hayden's body for placing in his casket. And then we had the funeral the next day. You know, all of this, it sounds very physical, but it was also very profoundly spiritual. The sense of treading on sacred ground in dealing with death. 
of course, you know, the same happens in birth. For any of us who've accompanied our wives or been present at the birth of a child, it's also sacred ground. It's very, very profound an experience. I think birth and death are remarkably similar in this way. These are these sort of transition points. You know, whereas birth, you're in the arrivals gate. You know, at death, you're at the departure gate mm -hmm. saying goodbye. But you are really at that moment, at, at a veil, at a threshold of transition. So that was May 19th, this very profound experience of being with a soul, in this case, our son, for the siblings, a brother, you know, as he, as he left this world, but transitioned to whatever the mystery of the afterlife, the next world, heaven, however we call it, this continuation of our journey. I think this, this sense of continuation is very, very important. You know, whether one comes from a faith background or not, I think this is a very important thing to ask questions about, to reflect on death, to look at how different cultures approach death. Because I think to believe that it truly is the end mm. fills us with fear. It's natural that it fills us with fear. But if there is more, if there is a continuation, then there is no reason to fear because we can be confident that the journey continues. You know, if you were in the womb of the mother and that was the end, of course it is the end of the womb. The, the womb world is finished, you know, but it's not the end of life. Life takes on a new dimension as we enter this world. And I think, of course, for Hayden's physical being, it is the end. That body has done its job. It's totally the end. But if, it's the, if the journey continues, well, then why fear? Why fear? We have nothing to fear. I think this is a really important aspect of reflecting on death, reflecting on this end of our life here, because it can seriously give us tools to conquer fear. And there's so much fear in the world today, especially after having this, gone through this pandemic. And we're not out of it, of course. But to reflect on death can help us live our lives more fully, more purposefully. And I think that's the purpose of this book. If there is a single message to this book, it is that by reflecting on death, by encountering death, we can live our lives more fully. This is not a sad story. I mean, part of it is sad, but it's a story that should fill us with living life more abundantly, more hope. And I think that's why it's so special to be on this particular podcast, you know, because that's your message. You know, look at you, John, you faced it. You faced death. Of course, you survived it. But whether you survive it or not actually doesn't matter. You know, it's the spirit of abundance and joy and hope and faith that comes from that facing, that unvarnished, non-pretentious, label-removing approach to asking those real questions, facing and reflecting death, and actually then no longer being fearful no longer having, having any need to fear.
we can be confident. At the beginning of our conversation, I asked you to introduce yourself to our listeners, and you did a phenomenal job taking us from birth to Africa, back up to the UK, over to China, into marriage, and then into the ultimate birth of four children. There's a great introduction of yourself, by the way. As we get ready to wrap up, I'd like you to introduce us to your son. You you wrote an entire book about him, about his legacy and his faithfulness and his life and his hope. But if you had to summarize it a bit more succinctly, tell me about Hayden. Thank you for asking that. Here was a, a young man raised in China, speaking Chinese, loving China, but Canadian at heart. Growing up, he was a world citizen. He didn't feel limited by one country or one passport. He felt he belonged to the family of humanity. And I think that was a really important part of his identity, the sense of being um, a world citizen. And he felt a real sense of gratitude for that and for the opportunities he had to to give back, to give to others. But there's a really interesting part of the book that I share where he talks about what he learned from cancer. And he said, before I thought to truly give back, I thought I had to have at least enough financial freedom that I could live in comfort while giving. But that's not the point. What's stopping you from doing so now? Cancer has forced me to reevaluate that plan that I had made for myself. None of us truly know how much time we have. So none of us can truly determine when is that perfect time to start giving. It doesn't have to be financially. In fact, it shouldn't be primarily financially in how we give back. Start with what you can do. Put a smile on people's faces. Bring joy to people's lives it will make their day that little bit better. And then he shares this little sentence from Abdu'l-Bahá where he says, we should be like the fountain, constantly giving of itself. And he then shares, interestingly enough, Hayden left a will. You know, I don't know many 19-year-olds who leave a will, but in this will, it's not very long a document, but right at the top, he shares something which I put on the back jacket of the book because I thought it was so telling of Hayden. You know, he says, live a life filled with joy and try to consciously consider how to bring joy to the lives of those around you as well. Hayden did that. He brought so much joy, not just to his family, but to friends, schoolmates, people who only met him very briefly. He loved to laugh. He had an infectious laugh. And I think in his name, what can we do? We can serve others. We can help others, whether it's, as he said, putting a smile on their faces or just bringing more joy to the lives of those around us. And as he said, consciously consider how to bring joy to others. I think that word consciously is uh, it's very powerful because often we live sort of relatively unconsciously. I think my life before Hayden's passing was comfortable. It was busy. 
it was purposeful, but it was relatively unconscious, I think. I think Hayden really woke me up. I think he really, in many ways, saved my life, made me ask more questions, made me not take things for granted. And I will be forever grateful to this young man for that gift. What a love song you just sang over your son and over his life and death and legacy. Adam, we have seven questions that we wrap up every conversation with. Question number one, as a man who's extraordinarily well-read, what's been the most influential or impactful book you've ever read? I'm afraid it's going to be a book that probably many of your listeners may not have heard of. It's called The Hidden Words. It was written in the 1850s by Baha'u'llah as he walked along the banks of the Tigris River. And these, these little verses, almost poems, are so beautiful. They are spiritual love letters, guides that I've found so useful in my life. What is one positive characteristic or one trait that you possessed as a little boy growing up that you wish you modeled or exhibited as brilliantly today? I think it would have to be my adventure sense of adventure. You know, I grew up in Uganda. I went on survival courses in the desert. I went on climbs up Mount Kenya or the Ruanzores. I think that adventure as a young boy, I feel I might be losing that. Mm. So question number three is if your home caught fire and all living things are out and you have an opportunity of running in and grabbing one item, a physical item that matters to you, John, you know, I don't think I'm as detached as you, you, you imagine I am. I would probably go in and grab the passports and my laptop just because they're so practical. If I had another choice, it would be the little prayer book that my grandfather had beside his bed. That's very beautiful and something special. I would run in and grab that. It would remind me of him and remind me never to dismiss the mysterious power of prayer as a tool in our bags as we go through life. I'm glad you ran past the passport, past the laptop and grabbed that book. So I think <laughs> you chose well. If you could sit on a bench on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone, living or deceased, who do you wish to be seated next to? That's the easiest question. It's got to be Hayden. I would just love to sit on a bench with Hayden. I'd like to ask him about what happens after we die. What's the best advice that Hayden or anyone else in your life who's influenced you ever provided you? Probably humility. This idea that the rivers all flow to the ocean because the ocean puts itself lower than the rivers. And I think for each of us, being humble attracts learning, attracts people, attracts wisdom, attracts blessings. What would you tell your 20-year-old self? I think definitely worry less. Here I am, a firstborn, take a lot of responsibility. I worry about things, you know? And I think looking back to that 20-year-old, I would say smile more, worry less. Adam, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? He tried. If that could be on my gravestone, I would feel greatly honored. Mm. He tried. 
Well, architect, traveler, spouse, parent, sojourner, mountain climber, hospice nurse, son, I thank you for trying. I thank you for learning. I thank you for asking questions, not having all the answers, but being willing to share what you've learned with us through your gains and through your profound losses in life. It's been wonderful getting to know you. John, thank you so much. What a privilege for me to be on your podcast. That is Adam Robarts. He is the author of the recently released book, 19. My name is John O'Leary, and today is your day. What a gift. Live inspired. Well, my friends, when I asked Adam to describe his son, Hayden, I loved hearing about Hayden's desire in the midst of the storm to give back. Wasn't that cool? To give back. And not just give back financially, but starting with where you are, with whatever you have and the abilities that you have to make a difference right now, today. Bring a smile to somebody's face. Bring joy into somebody's life. Show up for somebody in need. That was the example Hayden provided his dad, even in the middle of that storm. Frequently, we think that we need to write a big check or volunteer the most hours or some other grandiose gesture. Instead, giving back, making a difference, is just about consistently doing small things that make the world a little bit of a better place because you're part of it, starting with a reflection in the mirror. As I think of podcast guests that we've had on in the past that model this idea, one of the first names that came to mind was Tom Logan. He's a shining example. Today, Tom and the Marion Medical Mission have built, you ready for this? Thousands of wells in Africa that bring life-saving, clean water into these communities where there had been no clean water before. Tom is an awesome, shining example of living inspired. And if you want to learn more about him and his outreach and his impact and ultimately what it means to you in your walk, in your work, in your life, check it out today. You can learn more about Tom Logan on episode number 96. It's available anywhere you pulled on the Live Inspired podcast. Check it out. You'll love it. We'll have a link to it direct in the show notes. But for my friends who can't wait to get there, it's episode 96. My friends, I want to thank you all for making a difference in our life. I want to thank you for being part of this Live Inspired global community and I want to thank you for believing like I do, that in spite of the headwind and the challenges and the losses and the diagnosis and the pain that we frequently deal with in life, that the foundation remains firm, that the headwind may indeed be real, but that the best is yet to come. So for this time and until next time, my name is John O'Leary and today is your day. What a gift this moment is. Choose to live inspired. Keeley Companies was started almost 50 years ago by the one and only Larry Keeley. What started as a small family-owned paving company in St. Louis has grown to a nationally known full-service construction, development, and restoration partner. Larry the Legend, as he is affectionately known, has been a part of this growth every step of the way and continues to provide guidance as his son Rusty, my buddy, drives their vision and achieves results on purpose. His unwavering foundation of a family culture with a focus on people has gotten Keeley Companies to where they are today, and their journey is truly just beginning. 
To learn more about Larry the Legend and Keeley Companies, check them out at keeleycompanies.com.